0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you Kobus. Good afternoon. And today we're going to be talking about infrastructure. Now, I know this isn't the sexiest of topics, and we've been on a run with uh, with very provocative, uh, somewhat controversial topics. But today we're going to talk infrastructure. And that's because a map from Africaassets.com, that's Africa-assets.com, crossed our radar. We posted it up on Facebook, got a lot of reaction on Facebook. And I'm here to be able to ask Cobus to get his thoughts about it. First of all, Kobus, so this map came out, and there was two maps, actually. There was private equity investments in 2013 and then infrastructure financing in 2012. What the map in 2012 revealed... Was that China spent thirteen billion dollars on infrastructure financing, compared to the United States, which spent seven hundred and ninety-one million. The United Kingdom spent four hundred and fifty-eight million. France spent one point eight billion. And the next biggest contributor to African infrastructure financing, behind the Chinese, was the World Bank Group with four point three seven billion dollars. So, Cobus, what uh, what did you think of this map, and were you surprised by the numbers?
1: Um, yes, yeah, so, well, I, I, you know, I wouldn't say I was maybe surprised because I mean we had we had discussed the the size of these investments for a while, but it's just it's so you know it, it just makes it so clear that you know kind of how important China is in African development at the moment. It's just you know kind of every single kind of country and player, like for example, like the World Bank Group, is represented by an arrow, and China China's arrow is just this massive log, you know, kind of compared to all of these other slender arrows. So it's just it's really interesting. To see it visually um, and to see the kind of the kind of impact they're having, it's, it's, it's really you know kind of it, it makes a lot of sense in in the background of of everything we've been discussing over the last two years.
0: It does, and it also really kind of highlights just how infrastructure is such a critical part of the Chinese foreign policy, diplomatic, corporate, I don't know, all the different, uh, you know, diplomatic tools that the Chinese are using in Africa, infrastructure is a key part. Now, Deborah Braudigam, the professor at Johns Hopkins University, who is uh, very famous in the China-Africa sphere, she would say that the Chinese are using the same uh, a tactic and approach that they did for their own development. When Japan wanted to sec- secure oil from China, it used infrastructure. So the Chinese are doing exactly what happened to them and what they've been doing. Do you see that there is anything sinister? Is there anything untoward? Is there anything controversial about $13.36 billion uh, of, inv- of investment in infrastructure? Or is this, as Deborah Baudigan would say, they're just sticking true to form?
1: For me, I, I tend to always look at it in from a you know, as a sign of of China, Chinese pragmatism. Um, you know, obviously a lot of a lot of Chinese investment in Africa is is in the extractive industries. Um and they need to get stuff out and they need to get machinery in. Um and you know, kind of they also I think because they went through this kind of very hardcore development process relatively recently, um they know what you know, they they tend to know what these countries want. They don't necessarily make assumptions about what you know what these countries should have in comparison with what these countries are actually saying what they want, you know? And um, so they t- I think they tend to listen to what the countries are saying. Um, and then... Um you know, kind of obviously, China is in this this very unique position where they can sometimes offer package deals, um, you know, and have the one, you know, the for example, you know, most famously, you know, kind of having the the financing linked to to the extraction, um, you know, so that the loan can be paid off by some of the stuff that gets that get extracted. So, you know, so all of this, I think, it, it just um, I tend to always look at it from a just as an example of of practi- like practical and pragmatic deal making rather than as a kind of a big, you know, a big kind of um, conspiracy theory, as, as, as some other people tend to look
0: at it. Okay, well, on our Facebook page, let me read a couple of comments, and I'll give you my take, and then I'd like to hear what you say. So, let me read some feedback after we posted this on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Project. Uh, Fidelis, he wrote, quote, Why do they always tell us how much they spend on us and never said how much they made from us? Trust me, there's nothing like free food. No country will give such money without getting double of that. Are they Father Christmas? That was quote number one. Uh, Okumu Onjumi Charles, he wrote, quote, the best question to ask is at what cost? How much do they get in return? So this was one of the themes that emerged on Facebook. And when we talk about the massive investment of Chinese infrastructure, this oftentimes comes up. And I often feel like it's really kind of put through an, uh, an African prism and an African lens, if you will. And it goes back to the colonial period when the British, the Belgians, the Dutch, the Germans, when they invested in infrastructure in Africa, they literally invested in, you know, from the mines to the ports. So the infrastructure was not really for the benefit of the people. It was for the benefit of resource extraction and imperialism. I think what we're seeing with the Chinese in Africa is a very different type of infrastructure development. This is the demining of the Angolan countryside. This is roads coming in to Luanda. This is the building of the largest railroad. Uh, These are pieces of infrastructure that have direct and immediate benefit across a wide number of people. So the infrastructure development from the Chinese, whether it's on the internet, uh, communications, roads, hospitals, power, all of that, to me, is very, very different than what we're seeing uh, out, what we saw out of the Europeans during the colonial period, and I feel so much of that cynicism and skepticism that Fidelis and Charles uh, are, are conveying, which I think represents a wide swath of African public opinion towards the Chinese, um, is misplaced, in my view. And I explained to them, my response on our Facebook page was, "Great, if you don't want the Chinese for to come in and pay thirteen billion dollars." Where is Africa going to get the estimated $100 billion that it needs every year to bring its infrastructure up to speed in order to compete at a basic level of global competition, much less what we're talking about to make its infrastructure really compatible to compete with those here in Asia uh, or or other parts of the the developing world, such as Brazil uh, and Indonesia, for example, that have much better infrastructure? So that's my take. Kobus, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I I tend to agree with you generally, Uh, you know, I I think certain, one can probably identify certain patterns that do occasionally look like the European model, in the sense that, you know, there are occasionally times, um, and I'm now blanking on which particular country, but there is a country in West Africa um, where, you know, the the, the deal was extraction, um, I think of iron ore, um, and then... uh, you know, a, a rail link to a port, and then also a deep water port. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, that that tends to make you know to to make the 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 link clear. But at the same time, you know, I, th- I think the big difference is that in the European case, all of this all of this development came under the logic that the only people who are going to be using this stuff, this infrastructure, it would be Europe. You know, it came within. Within a, a, a kind of a global logic and a global structure, where the the permanent um, inferiority of Africa was kind of worked into was kind of baked into that cake, you know, kind of, and it was it was essentially part of the logic of of all of the infrastructure infrastructure development as it happened. Whereas you know, obviously, that's not the case necessarily, and you know, kind of with China, um, and all of this infrastructure, you know, opens up other options. For, for kind of multi-use options, um, you know. So so having a having a deep water port now compared to having a port built by the by, by by France, you know, in 1900, is is a very different thing because it immediately opens this door to selling to lots of different places. And you know, rather than it would have in in a kind of a, a, a European world system or like a colonial world system. So it seems to me that to a certain extent, it's not necessarily even that the Chinese are doing. So, you know, things so much better, although I, think, I do think they are doing it better than, the, than Europeans. I think anyone <laughs> is doing it better than Europeans. But, um, but, you know, it's also that the world has shifted. You know, so it's, it, you know, Africa isn't locked into uh, this
0: very narrow set of choices than they used to be. And I think you bring up a good point about how we can't necessarily ascribe a universal pattern for all the infrastructure deals because, as you pointed out, some of those deals are... Uh, tied to resource extraction So they literally are building The rail line to the port to, to extract it And that does, again, as you pointed out Really smell like what the British were doing In, to, in, in Kenya, for example However, uh, there's another factor here And this was brought up in our conversation With Kwabena uh, in Ghana I, I think a year or two ago Where he talked about, you know, they built a road And six months later, this, this piece of crap road You know, completely melted away back into the earth And so the quality of the infrastructure Is another kind of variable In Angola, the hospitals have cracks in them, the apartments that they're building are not being used. I mean, there's countless examples of that. But I think, too, when we look at the the crappy Chinese infrastructure that's being built, it's easy to assign blame to the Chinese. Uh, But what we're learning now, and this is only something that researchers are starting to come into kind of awareness about, is that the complexity of the deals and the supplier networks to build that infrastructure, the time to market for that infrastructure, oftentimes is out of the control of the Chinese entity. Now, I don't actually say that to defend the Chinese. It's just to kind of describe the complexity of some of these deals. So and that's, again, a blessing and a curse in some respects. One of the key points, Cobus, though, that is also different between the European infrastructure development and the Chinese is that the Chinese actually go to the host government and ask them, what infrastructure do they want? So in the DRC, where I used to live, it was Joseph Kabila that decided what he called the saint Chantier. And he's the one who determined what infrastructure would be built by the Chinese. That's a very different approach than the Europeans as well. So I think this just, there are some key distinctions to make. And what I'm picking up on is to really go back to what Fidelis were saying and what Charles were saying is at what cost. So let me bring up the, the next question here to really address their concerns as they brought them up on Facebook. Is there any immorality in your point of view? And I'm not asking this as a leading question. I genuinely want to know that the Chinese, of course, are not giving this as a free lunch. They're not giving $13 billion away to, the, to, to various African governments because, well, they feel generous. They're giving it away because their engagement, as you said, they're practical and pragmatic, will result in the acquisition of resources and markets that will make them money. Fair enough. So if they are walking away with two, three, four times the value of that infrastructure, is that a problem?
1: Oh, it's such a difficult question. Um, you know, I, um, I tend to think of it as that, that in a in certain kind of way, this is oddly more honest, or more, a more honest transaction between, between more equal partners than the traditional European aid transaction um, because of course the European aid transaction came with all of this benevolence again you know kind of coded in this idea of benevolence this idea that rich people are helping poor people to develop but it but it, it opened up a lot of backdoors to control and continuing you know kind of neo colonial control um, at least in the Africa in, in the in the, the Chinese case the African countries can make a choice, you know, kind of be, they, they, the stuff that they're selling, they're selling them because of the, these things are, are objectively valuable in the world. And, you know, kind of the, there's nothing this, you know, the only reason why China is, is buying so much of it is because, um, is not because China has somehow, you know, kind of determined the value of, of the commodities. It's because China just happens to be developing very very much at the moment and the rest of the, of the rich world is, is in, a, in a bit of a slump. Um, so, you know, kind of the, the Africans have, they have the potential to sell things to other people, you know. Um, so in that sense, they, they have a certain amount of agency, um, which they never have in an aid relationship. Um, you know, so in an aid relationship, they are always the beggars who can't be the tutors. Um, and, you know, and, and I think, I think that just the, the psychological impact of that alone, you know, kind of is, is so harmful. Um, you know, kind of, but I tend to agree with the people on, on Facebook. Is that I would love to see a map, uh, you know, kind of showing the value of stuff exported from Africa, um, you know, kind of and, and where and you know, kind of where it goes. Um, well, the problem I with, that, agree with them, but know, that might of, be yeah.
0: that might be wishful thinking to get that map, only because I don't think there's any way to accurately track that. A, a you know, the level of corruption is extremely high. So going through customs and whatnot, we don't know. Uh, B, these are multiple entities from state actors to private entities to, you know, small to medium-sized enterprises in countries that don't have very robust statistical measurement services. So is it realistic to think that you could actually generate that kind of data with any kind of reliability?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, you know, kind of that. That's probably why we don't have the map okay, as we speak. So. Um, but but still, you know, kind of it. The, the fact that 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 we don't have this data, I think that that fact alone is is notable.
0: It is. Um, you know, what interested me as well was the diversity of this investment. How it really is spread across the continent. Uh, Energy investments very, very high uh, in the north, Uh, that's not surprising, where there is lots of oil. Uh, You know, hydroelectric investments throughout the river and the Great Lakes area. Uh, Big ports along West Africa and East Africa. So, I mean, obviously it's around energy, it's shipping, but these are core pieces of infrastructure that Africa needs in order to get its economy to develop and so that economic growth can, can continue. Now, one of the questions that also was brought up on our Facebook page was, how much is this benefiting the people? And so I went out there and tried to do a little bit of research to find out, is there a trickle-down theory here? And I think another reason why people might be skeptical is because these deals are being done with political actors who may not have the best interests of their own people at stake. Joseph Kabila is a great example of this, where in the sickle mines deal, uh, there was infrastructure for resources, but 300 to 400 million, according to Africa Asia Confidential, is expected to have gone into his pockets. So, you know, are living standards going up because of this infrastructure and the trade and all of this investment, or are the political leaders themselves just getting fabulously and filthy rich?
1: Yeah, I mean, that That I think is a big question. You know, a lot of people have, have a lot of sceptics about the current kind of Africa rising narrative, as, as point, I've pointed out, that it's growth without job creation. Um, you know, kind of that it's essentially growth on paper, that um, that's very dependent on, um, you know, on, on just on global commodity prices. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I think the other issue, um, and that, that relates to a very interesting um, talk that was that was held at Chatham House um, a while ago, where. Um uh, Liu Hongwu, who's the director of the Institute for Africa Studies at Zhejiang University, he um, you know kind of he he held this this kind of um, discussion about you know about what what influence what was the impact of China-Africa cooperation on Africa's development, and he made the point that that the main thing that's actually being imported is not individual pieces of infrastructure, but a whole way of thinking about development, and obviously a lot of people have made that that that. That claim that the China model of development is being is being exported to Africa, um, and he's, he was kind of he wasn't only making the point that it is happening he's ha- he was making the point that it should happen much more aggressively That's right. um, and I was wondering what you thought of that and whether you think that the two can a- the, the two places can actually share a development model
0: No uh, I do think that and again, this is where I differ from my American compatriots. You know, when we talk to the people from the Rand Foundation, you talk to a lot of Americans and even Westerners, they'll always tell you, you know, we're not competing with China. Um, and, and I will tell you that looking at this graph, yeah, you're not competing. When China is spending $13.36 $13. <laughs> billion and the Americans are spending $791, there's no competition there. Now, it's not a tit-for-tat, but it does show you a level of engagement. And I think it was interesting, the uh, Business Week, just today, in fact, uh, we're recording on Sunday here, uh, just today published an article about how much attention President Xi Jinping has focused on Africa in his first year in office. And you compare that to the amount of attention attention that uh, Barack Obama or Francois Hollande or David Cameron have devoted to Africa. And they do a summit here and there and they host a leader here and there, but it's not sustained. And so when we look at China's commitment to the development model, I think it's very important to know that their, their, their support and their contributions and the investment is constant. And I think that's a very big difference than what we're seeing out of the West. Um, the West still has this idea That the Cold War is over, capitalism, democracy won, uh, and therefore there really isn't a competition for ideas out there. Um, I come back and say there is a battle, there is a war for ideas. There's three wars going on right now. There's a war between extreme fundamentalism religion. This is what we're seeing in northern Nigeria with Boko Haram. You're seeing it in other parts of North Africa as well, certainly in Egypt. Uh, You're seeing a war for the liberal democracies, Uh, that is the capitalist social, uh, you you know, this emphasis on political and civil rights. And then you've got on the Chinese side, the Paul Kagame, which is saying, I'll develop my, my economy at the expense of civil and political rights to focus on social and economic rights. Um, so I believe that there is a battle going on, a battle for ideas. The Americans and the West are not engaging in that battle, uh, and the fact that the Chinese are putting in so much money only goes to support their side of it. So, final thoughts from you, last comment and last word to you. Agree, disagree? What are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I tend to agree, and I think I think the one of you know the terms of one of the main battles, as you as you pointed out, is whether is, it, is um, do we need. Uh, you know, kind of, um, how can I say? Do we do we need, for example, uh, individual freedoms in order to achieve economic growth? Um, you know, and I think that you know that's obviously one of one of the the fundamental issues when you look at East Asian growth models. Is to is you know kind of, were you know was this growth kicked off? by a, a vibrant civic, civil society and and individual rights as is frequently assumed in, in Western liberal thinking um, or did those rights come along later as a later later um, phase once develop, development was already up and running you know as is frequently seen in, in East Asian development models um, and it's very interesting you know kind of I think Kagame one, one should definitely keep an eye on Kagame because I think he's definitely kind of throwing his weight behind the second idea um, you know and and liu was also in this talk it's very interesting how he was also pushing this idea very clearly you know saying that um that stability is the most important thing you know that the group always needs to come in ahead of the individual um and i think you know there are in that kind of thinking is finding um a certain amount of like, uh, of receptive ground, you know, kind of in Africa as well, because I think there are certain kind of cultural overlaps between African culture and, and Chinese culture in that sense, or, or different kinds of, or maybe I'm talking from a Southern African perspective. Well, um, you, you go, go ahead,
0: go ahead. No, I was just to say to your point, that does follow the East Asian model as well. Uh, let's go back a generation to South Korean President Park's father, who was Park Chihua, hua who... You know, ran the country without civil and political rights under military mm. rule. Today, South Korea is a democracy. Chiang uh, Kai-shek ran Taiwan under military rule. Today, Taiwan is a democracy. Japan, same way. These emerge these yes. into democracies. So in some way, China says, says that it's following that path, that it needs economic stability first before it can democratize. It has a very different definition of democracy than we do in the West. And I think that's a very important understanding that they don't define it in Jeffersonian terms. So, you know, their democracy and what we think of democracy is not going to look at all alike. Uh, But it's something to, to consider.
1: Exactly. And I mean, they, they frequently tend to have um, a much more instrumentalist idea of like of, of, of the value of this of this kind of democracy. So I remember interviewing a, um, a South Korean economist years ago um, where he was saying, like, look, you know, kind of South Korea needed to build up its economy. And once it needed to move out of, an, of a manufacturing economy and a heavy industry economy into a knowledge economy, that was the appropriate time. For individual rights and freedom of speech and so on to, to start blooming or to 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 be liberalized, you know, kind of because that would lead to the growth of the knowledge economy. um, you know, kind of so it's it's again, it's it, you know, kind of it's not that these these rights are necessarily fundamental always, you know, kind of that they need to be, You know that they need to be released or deployed when they, when they actually, when it suits the rest of the economy and the entire society. Um, I think the big, big difference between between that um, and Africa is that I think there's a much, um, you know, I think there's a there's a there's a real break of trust between. Leaders and the populace in Africa. So pop- the popular people, or like, like the uh, you know, kind of the, the general populace, almost never believes that leaders fully represent them. Well, justifiably you know, so, 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 because they don't. Yeah. I mean, that's, so, that's so an- they, they, There's a. There's a breakdown in the nation-state, frequently in Africa, you know, kind of which you don't see,
0: you know, kind of the, the, which East Asia has managed to avoid. Well, that's
1: deservedly in many respects. I think that's a big difference.
0: Yeah. And, and there's one other final point that I'd like to make before we go, is that oftentimes when we do this conversation in the context of Africa, Africans oftentimes, and again, this is a broad generalization, so I do apologize. But uh, it's just to, to kind of raise a point here, that Africa is somehow special. And in, in the past, it was. it was. It was very much the attention of Europe. But as we've talked about many times, you know, although China is investing billions into Africa, it still represents, you know, in single digits in its overall trade. Uh, but what we are seeing is that Africa is part of a global trend where the Chinese are investing billions in South Africa. Here in Southeast Asia, hundreds of billions of dollars of Chinese investment are coming, oh, washing over Southeast Asia. So this is really part of a global trend. So what's happening in all this investment in Africa is really not unique in any way. We could do, Kobus, you and I, the China in Latin America and the China in the Americas podcast and have just as much information, just as much discussion, just as much controversy as we're doing. Doing the China Africa podcast, or here in Southeast Asia, the same thing is happening. Um, You know, I, I have this kind of theory that I've been kind of test driving out a little bit, is that you know the British, when they had their empire, changed it through a measurement system, the Pax Britannica, changed it through English. As a global language, they changed the world through their navy. The Americans changed it through war. We won the the First and Second World Wars. We defined the the post in the Cold War era. We built the global institutions. And then we had an ideology that accompanied that. And the Chinese now in their era are going to be changing it through people, which is immigrants, a mass migration of people all over the world. Here in Southeast Asia, tens of millions of Chinese now live. In Africa, we've talked about one to two million people live there. In South America, every country has Chinese communities now so people and money so much money is going out of China both legitimate and illegitimate that that will have a change in the world as well and that's going to be a very different era that we go into Uh, but I think part of that is what we're seeing in this map and that was so interesting for me so now truly the last word to you and then we'll have to say goodbye.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the the big issue is how is how sustainable that is. You know, whether um, whether the the flow of money can be kept up, um, and what the kind of impact will be, um, you know, if if you know where, where once that changes, um, and you know, kind of whether it's possible to have a flow of money without a flow of ideology. That's always very interesting. If 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 it's possible, then that's kind of a new phase of history in a way,
0: which yeah, um, which I think is yeah, what is absolutely so very interesting to see. Yeah, it's a pragmatism, yeah. a mercantilism, but it's not ideological in my view. So, uh, listen this. this. This topic is going to be uh, one that will never be settled. Uh, Already on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. It's been a great discussion. I I encourage you to kind of go back to let me find the day that we posted it up. On April 18th, we posted that up. Some great comments from Fidelis, from Charles, and... uh, from Essence uh, and Wee Hobson. So I really encourage you to kind of check out that discussion. You'll see some of my responses. Cobus and I update the page almost 18 hours a day. Uh, Kobus is in South Africa. I'm here in Asia. And uh, so we have the time zones working in our favor, but it's a great way to stay on top of the top news. Uh, but also, Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? I'm also on Twitter at stadenesk that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at eolander. that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. Uh, the best way to get this podcast, well, you can listen on our mobile apps for Android and iPhone, uh, but also iTunes is the best way. Just go and look for the China Africa Project, search for that and it'll come up. Uh, doing about 100,000 listens a month now, so we're really excited about that from all over over the world Uh, but you can also listen to us on soundcloud on stitcher on the blackberry network in uh, south africa and very soon on your kindle as well so until uh, we'll be back in a few more days we try to do these every week two or three times a week Uh, we'll be back with another edition of the china in africa podcast thank you so much for listening